Welcome to the Bill Bennett Show, my new free podcast dedicated to translating Trump and to cut through all the noise in Washington, D.C. We've got a big show coming up for you today. Congressman Ron DeSantis will talk about his proposal to rein in the Mueller investigation. Our friend Brian Kennedy will join me to talk all things Trump, how he's handling the hurricane, North Korea, the economy, his critics, and more. I will also share my thoughts on Hurricane Harvey and the big news stories of the week. But first, in just a moment, I'd like to welcome to the program Amy Wax, a law professor at the University of Pennsylvania. I will ask Professor Wax about the scandal she and Professor Larry Alexander, my old classmate in college, he's now at the University of San Diego, started uh, that uh, the scandal that Professor Wax and Professor Alexander started by writing an op-ed which stated that all cultures are not equal. Really? Cannibalism and communism aren't equal to bourgeois American culture. Interesting. Okay, uh, let's go. We are delighted to be joined uh, by Professor Amy Wax at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, Professor Wax uh, co-authored an article with uh, San Diego law professor Larry Alexander, uh, an op-ed in the Philadelphia Inquirer. I'll characterize it in a second. Uh, Professor Wax, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Um, I should mention that Larry Larry Alexander was my classmate at Williams College, and we were both philosophy majors 52 years ago. Excuse that. Well, small world. No kidding. (laughs) (laughs) No kidding. Uh, Anyway, I I read the article as soon as I saw mention of it by uh, Heather McDonald in in her column, and I thought this is a perfectly sensible article, and then I read about the controversy. Um, let me just let me just take a little bit from the article. You talk in the in the article. It's called "Paying the Price for Breakdown of the Country's Bourgeois Culture." You talk about a culture that laid out the script we were all supposed to follow: get married before you have children, strive to stay married for their sake, get the education you need for gainful employment, work hard, avoid idleness, go the extra mile for your employer or client, be a patriot ready to serve the country, be neighborly, civic-minded, and charitable, avoid coarse language in public, be respectful of authority, eschew substance, abuse, and crime. And then you say this cultural script began to break down in the late 60s. Now, I guess the part that is creating some uh, criticism, I'll say that, is where you call for a reaffirmation of this culture. Um, I'd like to divide this conversation into two parts. What has been the reaction, particularly the negative reaction? How would you characterize it? And then I want to get into some of the substantive philosophical questions. What has been the reaction? Has there been an uproar or furor about this piece? Well, the reaction has, uh, as you know, with society as a whole, diverged dramatically. It's really been a schizo. Uh, It's how I would designate the experience. Um, my uh, colleagues have generally either been silent or very negative or outraged. Uh, today's Daily Pennsylvanian, our school newspaper, there is online at least a letter um, adamantly disagreeing with pretty much everything I've said without designating exactly what it is that they think I've said or why they disagree, uh, signed by a uh, 33 of my colleagues, about half of my law colleagues. Uh, so that's that's a negative uh, response, I would say. Uh, there have been sure. other letters by graduate student groups condemning me for all of the isms, 
racism, you know, white supremacyism, bigotry, all of those names have been hurled my way. Uh, There have also been other materials uh, coming out of the universities, the National Lawyers Guild, a lot of stuff coming out of law and coming out of universities that's been very negative. On the other hand, I have been deluged, and I mean deluged, and I'm not of the pundit class, so this kind of caught me off guard. Uh, no good news yeah, goes unpunished. Yeah. Yeah, with hundreds right. on hundred, my inbox is full uh, with all sorts of messages from all over the country, from people in all walks of life, uh, from all occupations. Um, and they have run 97% positive. Sure. Uh, and in addition, there have been comments on not just my article, but the Daily Pennsylvanian article, articles in newspapers across the country that have picked up this op-ed and that have discussed it. Uh, Jason Riley in the Wall Street Journal, Eugene Volokh in the Washington Post. There have been mm-hmm. some other mm-hmm. online um, discussions were on Dreher at the American Conservative, uh, the Daily Blaze. I, I can't even catalog them all, sure. but they've been uh, the yeah. pundit. <laughs> hundreds, hundreds. It's been a full-time job. Uh, and they've run very positive. Yeah, and well, very I'm, thoughtful. Yeah, the, very thoughtful. Yeah, the, the lyric that went through my head was, not to accuse you of being Mrs. Robinson, but Simon and Garfunkel, a grateful nation turns its lonely eyes to you. Um, <laughs> this is what you're. This is what you're getting from the public, who shakes its head about a lot of these things. I just want to underscore some of the critical negative reaction has come not from undergraduates or just from student paper, but from your law school colleagues. Is that correct? Yeah, the undergrads I don't think have had any kind of collective response that right. I can recall. Um, I have heard from undergraduates. I have gotten emails from undergraduates. Very poignant emails thanking me, telling me about huh. ways in which they've been ostracized or marginalized, or in one case had a letter put in her file for daring to dissent from the kind of, you know, excoriate Trump pylon or various other things. So uh, there are a lot of undergraduates who feel, I think, very silenced and are grateful that someone is uh, saying something that they can agree with. Let's get... Okay. Um, I, the reason I mention it is, uh, and, and I'm sure you're right, is that we tend to see in a lot of these demonstrations on campus, uh, groups of students, sometimes outside people coming in, professional types. Um, and what doesn't get mentioned is where the faculty is on, on this. I'm a faculty veteran for a long, long time. And um, it's very important for people to understand that Faculties have been, I believe, compromised or self-compromised uh, on these issues too. What, what, what did the what did the twenty or thirty people who criticized you from the law faculty say was wrong with your views? What was wrong with what you and Alexander said? Well, what's really interesting, I mean, there've been two faculty responses. The first was an op-ed um, a couple of weeks ago, signed by some of the historians on the faculty. And they wrote, you know, a substantive piece. They tried to make arguments saying that I misconstrued and I misunderstood the 50s and that the 50s were hopelessly tainted and basically that nothing that was associated with or came out of the 50s could possibly be any good. I'm just paraphrasing what I think their argument is. And frankly, although 
no surprise. I didn't agree with their assessment. I didn't really have a problem with them publishing that. I mean, they were entitled to try and express their point of view and, uh, you know, no harm, no foul there at all. Um, But apart from that, the, the response has been incredibly disappointing. You know, my letter writers are outraged. I'm, I'm not. I'm just disappointed. Why? Of the 30-whatever faculty that, that signed that, not one of them, save one where I had a, a pre-existing lunch date with him and he decided not to cancel it, not one came to talk to me about my views. Yeah. Not one person discussed my op-ed or my comments. Uh, in subsequent interviews with me directly. Nobody was interested in doing that, okay? They just wanted to engage in a smackdown. I mean, the only thing I could call it is, you know, a virtue signaling or whatever they call we, you know, we hereby repudiate. Well, tell me about it. Let's talk about it. Nothing like that. Nothing at all. Um, One very decent person you know, a friend of mine came and told me she was signing it, I, and that was very nice. But when I asked her, well, what are the arguments in the piece? Are they making any points? And she said, basically, no. So I said, well, then I guess I don't have to worry about it. Uh, they, <laughs> good. I, one yeah, less thing yeah. to write. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, you see, I could kind of stricken. But see, I just see this as a, a complete betrayal of what the Academy is supposed to be. Uh, and that's the sad part. I think the, the university has become a place that teaches students what to think, not how to think. It doesn't yeah. inform them about uh, the different arguments on different sides. They don't even know the material. I mean, they. I recently taught a week-long course at Yale under the auspices of the Elm Institute, which is a private organization, think tank. Uh, and I assigned sections of the bell curve, Charles Murray and Richard Hernstein's sure, book. Sure. To the seminar, and these were people who were, you know, from different uh, backgrounds and, and viewpoints. And I got uniformly the comment, Thank you for assigning this. I have never read this yeah. book before. Yeah. Yeah. It is amazing to me what's in it, how intelligent it is, how much information is in there that I would like to know. And I have to thank you because I never yeah. would have read this book. If you had not assigned it, well, I can tell you that is what is going on in the university today. We have courses that purport to be about topic X, Y, and Z, and only one side of the, you know, coin is is actually provided. So students are, are just profoundly ignorant, and they're... Their sort of most refined ability at this point, as far as I can tell, is the ability to sniff out any thought that is the slightest bit politically incorrect and zap it before it penetrates, you know, the iron fence around their brain. This yeah. They are very good at doing my my one of my relatives calls it the PC sniffer, the exquisite. Mm-hmm. PC sniffer. Mm-hmm. Boy, the are antennae. they good at that. The antennae are Not good at much else, I'm afraid. <laughs> you know, that, that, so point, that's point, a of, that's that a point of familiarity, the bell curve, um, I found actually your, 
your essay closest to the, the new book by Murray, Coming Apart. We'll, we'll talk about that in a second. But you talk about familiarity. I did a book a long time ago called The Book of Virtues, stories of, from, you know, from every culture about various virtues. <clears throat> and I said I just thought people needed reminders of these stories like the Midas Touch and the Emperor's New Clothes. This is obviously a different level than you were talking about. But people wrote in droves and said, never heard that story. Never heard the story. Right. Might, might have never, never heard the, the story. Right, right. Yeah. So, so that actually, goes deep to, and, and far back. Go ahead. I wanted to make one more point. This was yeah. actually triggered by uh, my being on blogging heads the other night, two nights ago, or three nights ago with Glenn Lowry. And Glenn Lowry is wonderful. And, you know, he, he really does conduct a model of a civil conversation, I think. But I realized that my just my colleagues refusing even to to come in and talk to me uh, and just, you know, the anthropologists tell us and I would say they do have something to contribute. Uh, the anthropologists tell us that people uh, feel shame when they know that they are falling short of some standard or ideal that they ought to be defending yeah. or holding up. And I think my colleagues are smart enough to be ashamed of what they are doing. They are not engaging arguments on the merits. They are not conducting a conversation of reasoned discourse, of considering each point and trying to figure out if that point is valid or has truth behind it or has empirical support. Uh, or whether it lacks such and uh, can be refuted. They're not doing that hard work. It really requires an enormous effort to do that. No, they're taking the easy way out, and they're just engaging in a smackdown. And they know that engaging in a smackdown is not what the academy is supposed to be about. And I really think that they feel shame. They feel some level of shame for falling short in that respect. And uh, believe me, I would be ashamed. And this model they're setting for the students is is abhorrent. What they are, uh, the message they're sending to the students is really terrible. I'm sorry. Isn't there a special animus here? That's what I wanted to get into. I I agree with you about the university, what it should be, the marketplace of ideas, Holmes talks about, and so on. But why the special, uh, these finely tuned antennae, these sniffers, as you call them, or as your friend calls them, uh, toward uh, the bourgeois values? Why isn't the animus directed against cannibalism or communism or Confucianism? Use three C. Why? Why this? Is there something? Is there some? Other reasons, psychological, uh, hatred of the father, hatred of the system, hatred of America. I, w- what is this? Why does the animus, the ire, seem to rise uh, to the to the highest level when we're talking about these, I, I guess one has to say, uh, Anglo-American or European-American uh, traditions? Calvinist, European-American, a lot of different ways to sure, describe it in sure. terms of the place where they've reached their highest development or sure. the sort of traditions they've come out of, places they've come out of, I guess is the best way of putting it. Yeah. Um, well, you know, we could be here all day trying to figure this out, and I, I'm still trying to figure it out. But okay. I think there were a lot of different currents that came together to, you know, generate fuel, this kind of savage reaction. And a lot of it was sort of the way we we structured our our op-ed. I mean, one is we were overtly um, judgmental about uh, some 
cultural clusters of behaviors and habits and mindsets being superior to others. We were willing to actually say that. Uh, and we said it very carefully. We said they are, they are better uh, equipped to, to, get, to get people ahead, to allow them to flourish and succeed in our current society, our current Western American technocratic, capitalistic, democratic uh, dynamic society, you know, sort of cognitively intensive, everything that marks our own period, um, there are certain behaviors that work best in that yeah. setting. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, people don't, they, they bristle when, when you make that kind of judgment. I think there is this kind of debauched multiculturalism, which yeah, sure. goes along with a non judgmentalism when you put them together. You know, you, you can't make any judgments or distinctions, number one. Number two, you certainly cannot trace Western civilization. You but cannot trace anything coming out of the West, out of Europe, out of white culture. You know, mention the word whiteness, people go berserk. I'm not sure why. But they're prepared um, to make—let me interrupt. They are prepared to make judgments about, non, about white culture. They're not non-judgmental about everything they oppose. They are— of course, they make right. judgments. They make right. judgments right. against people who, you know, valorize okay. the things that they think are oppressive or, okay. you know, evil or uh, detrimental to v- victims. And then there's the whole victimology thing. There, there's multiculturalism. There's victimology. There's, okay. you know, special solicitude what? towards people who are thought to be the, um, you know, to be oppressed. Uh, it's just a lot of okay. different stuff kind of what? coming together and I could go on but you know I won't uh, well, we want you to go there. on but we want you to go on at the law school are you, are you okay what happens now what has President Gutman said what is the well what will the administration do will you be put on a list are you safe are you tenured uh, will life be made miserable for you what, what, what will happen you think well I'm tenured so okay. um, I really am in a very privileged position I am as Peggy Noonan would say protected uh, and nobody has seriously suggested that, you know, I am in any danger of losing my job. I mean, there have been these kind of persiflage calls by uh, students, you know, and students are notoriously ill-informed to uh, fire this witch and fire this woman and all that, you know, but nobody is paying much attention to those. Uh, and Amy Gutman has been uh, notably silent, as far as I know. I haven't She's heard the her president. Uh, right? weigh yeah. in at all. Yes. And, yep. and my dean actually has been very supportive. I think he's really been uh, he's stepped up. Good. <clears throat> he, has, uh, he and I have maintained very amicable uh, relations during this. We've had a few conversations. We've had very good conversations. Um, and uh, I you know, think he's, he's behaved very well. There have been calls to remove me from teaching first-year students and this and that, and he has pretty much, he's rejected all of that. Um, you have to understand, though, he's got donors to please as well. There, sure. you know, have oh, been sure. some donors who have not been too happy with I know. the way I've been treated, including people who have endowed my chair and the like. I know. So I've talked to a couple, taught. yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's caught. He's caught. But I, I don't want to say that he's being expedient. I think that he's really trying to do the right thing. Okay. Um, let's come so, back to the. You know, go ahead. Yeah. Well, let's come back to uh, to the university because the odd thing is, it seems to me, 
um, that uh, you're, I mean, this may strike you as an odd thing to say, that you're not being called to account publicly in a public debate. I remember I wrote an article after uh, Stanford dropped its required course in Western Civ saying that I thought Western Civ was, as civilizations go, a pretty good one. And I went out to defend it. And they said, oh, well, the faculty will meet you and argue. You've got to give an hour for Q&A. I said, fine. When I got there, the faculty didn't show. They sent students up to argue with me. Um, there will be no public debate. They won't call on you to defend your views publicly and argue, will there? Because they don't believe that anymore, some of these critics, do they? I mean, you would, I imagine, relish a full-fledged, full-throated debate on these issues. Well, it would be fun. I mean, we have a yeah. faculty retreat coming up. They could devote an hour to or 45 yeah. minutes to yeah. the op-ed. Uh, there are lots of ways we could have the debate. And it's very interesting because I think the people who have spearheaded, you know, condemning me, um, they don't want to debate. Uh, I think part of it is just kind of indolence. Part of it is just saying, well, there are certain views beyond the pale. So they want to mark out views as beyond the right. pale and, of course, with the widest scope possible. Essentially, you were seeing in the current era, you know, after after some of the recent incidents, anything, anything to the right of the progressive catechism is Nazi. I mean, it's ridiculous. There's like a total flattening of the landscape of discourse where anybody who, you know, dares to raise a doubt about affirmative action or dares to suggest there ought to be immigration restrictions of some kind or any change whatsoever, you know, or who dares to want to cut back on public programs or, you know, change our policies in certain ways, uh, that person or makes judgments about, you know, conduct, habits, behavior, that person's a bigot and a Nazi. There's just labeling and dismissal and of course labeling and dismissal is incompatible with reason discourse you know substantive conversation uh supporting your positions arguments on the merits and all the stuff that the academy is supposed to exemplify and of course the legal academy above all is supposed to exemplify those are the values that, that we are supposed to be teaching and i can tell you that our students are you know, I think relatively deficient compared to the past in yep. their ability to marshal arguments uh, on both sides of the question. I mean, the best ones still are very good at it, of course, uh, despite the zeitgeist. They they do it very have, well. But uh, have they have they signed up for their classes yet? Have you seen an increase in your classes? I bet you will. Well, I teach a required first year class. And oh, so okay. Students there are assigned Can't get much to me. bigger. They're assigned okay. To me. Okay. okay. Yeah. So that uh, that class, I I just have a fixed roster. But I am teaching a seminar in conservative political and legal thought, okay, which let's I see taught what last year. Let's see what and happens. I have a long waiting list for that class. I have a waiting list. It's going to get longer, <laughs> Professor Wax. It's going to get longer. We'll see. We'll Thank see. you. Thank anyway, you very much. We, um, yeah. I'm, I'm just, let me just say, we're, I'm one of those Americans who, you know, as you said, uh, oh, you were overwhelmed with the mail. I'm one of those who's grateful for you being there and for speaking out. And as several of us said, we were all talking, someone said, where has Amy Wax been all my life? So, uh, <laughs> so you're a, you're a well, hero right I now. Am. Yeah. So. All right. Well, I look forward to hearing this podcast. You will, you Thank will, you, so you will hear it and you'll enjoy it. And I, the only thing I look forward to hearing more than this podcast is hearing from president Gutman, who is a philosopher like me. 
like I, you know, not a grammarian like me. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Professor Wax. Well done. Well done indeed. Thank you. Thank you. Just a quick couple of reflections on the interview with Amy Wax at the University of Pennsylvania. Drop her a line, by the way, uh, whatever you think, whatever you feel. I am eager to hear from Professor Gutman, President Gutman, philosophy professor, formerly at Princeton. I've known her for a while. Uh, and let's see what she has to say, whether she is supportive. So far, she's been silent, and that's not the right answer. One other thing I want to say. Uh, one thing uh, about life that you find out is that interesting things happen. And sometimes when bad things happen, good things happen as a result. This was a bad thing, this attempt to uh, uh, taint this woman, to blemish her, to uh, uh, put her in a, in a box and, and to say that she didn't uh, deserve to be uh, teaching students, uh, to, uh, to demonize her, really. Uh, and that good thing was all of that outpouring that she heard from people all over the country. Um, good. You know what it reminded me of, uh, you all? It reminded me of the people seeing the Texans taking care of other Texans, whites taking care of blacks, blacks taking care of whites, people taking care of each other. Rhetoric aside, Charlottesville rhetoric aside, uh, accusations aside, uh, this is the way America operates and lives. There is a wellspring, a huge wellspring, a huge reservoir, I'll use that in connection here with Houston, uh, of goodwill, of good sense uh, in the American people. And they showed it both in what they communicated to Amy Wax at the University of Pennsylvania and again, more profoundly and directly in what they have been doing in Texas. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Ron DeSantis is a congressman for Florida's 6th District, chairman of the House National Security Subcommittee, and he's a member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Thank you for joining us, Congressman. Good to be here, Bill. Ron, what, what, do you, what is this amendment uh, that you are pushing to curtail special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation? Shouldn't we let Robert Mueller just follow his instincts and follow his head and the head of all the other people, the thousands of heads he's hired? Well, you know, the deputy attorney general on Fox News recently said that the Department of Justice doesn't conduct fishing expeditions. And I agree that they shouldn't do fishing expeditions and that Congress shouldn't fund fishing expeditions. The problem, though, is if you look at the appointing order that Deputy Attorney General Rosenstein issued to appoint Mueller in the first instance, he did not identify a particular crime to be investigated. He cited Jim Comey's testimony from March of 2017, identifying the existence of a counterintelligence investigation. And so he superimposed Mueller on top of a counterintelligence investigation. That effectively means there are no discernible limits to the investigation in either scope or time. And here's the difference between a normal investigation and a special counsel. In a normal prosecutor's office, you have all kinds of cases that come in. And so you investigate one, maybe nothing's there at first. You keep doing it, keep doing it. But at some point, you're going to have to make a decision about resources and you have to tend to other cases. Well, with a special counsel, this is the only game in town for them. And so if they don't have clear limits on their jurisdiction, I think the natural incentive is to just find something. So I think what Rosenstein did was he really invited a fishing expedition. And so while my amendment does is it curtails this to limit it on this question that the media has been asking about, was there illegal conduct? 
between Russian government agents and someone affiliated with the campaign? Yes or no. And if there is, produce it. If there's not, move on. And so that's why the second part of the amendment is to set a time limit on the back end. So we put that at six months from the date of enactment, which would put us into the spring. And, Bill, it's important to point out, Comey conducted an investigation into Russia for over a year before Mueller was appointed. So if my amendment were to be passed, uh, it will have been 20, 22 months time where this stuff's been investigated. And I think at some point there was either a crime or not. And we have to identify that, hold people accountable, or else we have to move on. You don't just keep looking until you find something on Paul Manafort or someone within Trump's orbit. Yeah, I remember uh, when Rosenstein, uh, Deputy Attorney General, was interviewed on this, said what uh, the, the questioner said, what, what keeps this from becoming a fishing expedition? And he answered, well, we don't do fishing expeditions. Well, that's a circular argument. I mean, it, it certainly can happen. And, you know, you mentioned in, in typical prosecutor's office, there's a question of other cases and resources. Not so here. Right? Right. No, no, exactly. And, and just with Rosenstein, it's, uh, I haven't really talked about this much publicly, but when he appointed Mueller, he actually did a briefing for the entire House of Representatives. It was a closed door briefing in the basement of the Capitol, and he took questions. And so I asked him. I said, I have your appointing order here, and I have the Department of Justice's regulations. The regulations require the existence of a criminal investigation in order to do a special counsel. You've identified a counterintelligence investigation. How did you have authority to do this? And he really didn't provide me with an answer. He said, well, you know, if you do counterintelligence, if you see evidence of a crime, then you can pursue it. But that's always true, Bill. If an FBI agent is going across the street to get a cup of coffee and they see crime, they can pursue it. So from that very instant, I was concerned about how this was done, and I think he really bungled it. And it's just the type of thing, when you start seeing them hire 14 or 15 prosecutors, why do you need so many prosecutors on a case? Some of these prosecutors are major Democratic contributors, which that doesn't in and of itself disqualify you from being a good prosecutor, but it's just odd. There aren't Republicans, known Republicans, uh, that he's hired, and maybe that's just because he has a tin ear. But the upshot of this, I think, is that most people are looking at it and saying, well, they're just trying to find something just to damage the Trump administration. What I fear is not that there's a big conspiracy that's uncovered with Russia. I've always thought that was implausible. But I think the opportunity cost for us in the Congress of pursuing the agenda, uh, I think it's very high for yeah. us because the media is going to focus on this. Yeah. We've already seen there's been leak after leak after leak on this. I don't know what's true or what's not true, but I think we've what we've learned throughout the course of this Russia stuff is the media, they're willing to take the thinnest of accusations and really run with them, even if they're later proven uh, to be false. So uh, really the point here is, to get us focused on the people's business. Because when I'm in uh, Florida, I don't hear voters concerned yeah, sure, about Russia. I sure. hear them concerned about the core issues. Yeah, no, absolutely. Just a couple more questions, and I want to ask you about what's going to happen. But, um, you know, to the common sense non-member of the bar mentality, you know, uh, to people I talk to myself, it, it sure looks to me like Mueller's out to get him. I mean, why do you hire these high-profile former prosecutor Democrats Come on, the common sense test. No, it doesn't necessarily mean, but but it, in the real world, you know, you get the feeling that they're out to they're out to find something. And combine that with, 
I like to repeat what the old, uh, my old friend, the departed uh, uh, journalist Robert Novak said. He said, I hate these special counsel things. He says, these people are like God. They have unlimited power and unlimited resources and unlimited time. Uh, and, you know, if any of them are out after you uh, at any time, they'll, they'll find something because, uh, the, you know, they have unlimited scope and resources. Well, that's right. And um, when you look at saying when these are reports, I don't know if they're true. Oh, Mueller is just going to look at Trump's business transactions or whatever. I mean, is that what we want in America to just have someone have everything uh, combed over to try to find some paper violation or something? And the power of a federal prosecutor is such that if you really scrutinize people who are involved doing a lot of transactions, you can definitely find something in almost anybody sufficient to indict them, maybe not to convict them. But if you really want to do that, uh, and that exerts a lot of toll on people who get caught up in the investigations. And the thing is, is like he's going after Manafort, supposedly. And look, if Manafort did wrong, fine, hold them accountable. But some of these people who get caught up in this stuff would not have ever even been investigated but for the fact that they're trying to get information on, on the president or the president's family. Um, so there is an inequity involved in a special counsel. You know, someone like a Scooter Libby would never have faced any jeopardy um, if that were just a normal case, because it wouldn't have sure. been conducted the way that was conducted. Sure. Will, um, what are the odds that uh, you can get your, your amendment through again this is an amendment to curtail special counsel Mueller's investigation put a time limit on it what what, the, what do you think the chances are well the first hurdle is that this has been submitted to the rules committee it has not been approved to be voted on it's germane it's it's legitimate use of uh, curtailing funding uh, for an appropriations bill so there shouldn't be a problem with it but the speaker has the prerogative to keep uh, germane amendments off the floor and I haven't spoken to the speaker yet about it uh, I want to. I think we deserve a vote for it. Um, how this will come down, I mean, I think that obviously every Democrat will oppose it because they want a fishing expedition. They want this to detract from our ability to advance uh, a conservative agenda. Um, I think most Republican voters uh, feel as you do about this, and it just it seems more of just try to find something to get the guy with, and they don't think it's it's necessarily fair. So that probably would prompt a lot of of my Republican colleagues to look favorably upon it. But one of the things that could happen with this bill is, say we do get a good vote out of the House, the Senate obviously is a different beast, but then maybe we can go to Rosenstein and say, hey, why don't you redo this order, issue a superseding order, set clear limits uh, so that we know this isn't a fishing expedition, and maybe a vote in the House will prompt him to be able to do it. Because as you mentioned in his interview, there's nothing written that would suggest it's not a fishing expedition. It's just yeah. he says yeah. it's not. Um, but, you know, I don't think he's handled this very well. I mean, I know he's got a, um, I know he's been, was respected as a prosecutor and as a U.S. attorney, but, you know, this is the big right. leagues here, and I think it needs to be handled better. Yeah, I will admit, I can, and confess a little, when he was appointed, I was on Fox, and they asked me, I said, I'm not for the special counsel thing anyway. My brother, you know, you know who he is, lawyer Bob Bennett, He's, he doesn't like the special counsel thing. He's been asked to service as these. He just thinks it's full of mischief. But but uh, I said, yeah, I, I don't like the special counsel thing. 
But if you're going to have one, I think this is the right guy. But I'm having second thoughts now, now that I looked at how he's how he's acting and what he's doing and who he's appointing. But back to the question I asked you, right, no Democrat will, will support your amendment, I'm sure. But I'm a little worried about the Republicans. Um, the uh, news story that we uh, use as the basis for this discussion, Ron, quotes Paul Ryan as saying, I support Mueller. Uh, and I think the best advice is to let Robert Mueller do his job. I'm worried that this... Uh, will lead he, uh, Paul and others to say, just uh, just leave Mueller alone. Well, I think that quote may have been prior to me doing this in response to Trump, oh, good, uh, the rumor good. that Trump may fire uh, Robert Mueller. Um, and I've, and I've um, advised uh, against yeah. firing Mueller, too. I think yeah, the president has the authority idea. to do it. I think politically it would, be, it would backfire big time. And the thing is, is, you know, Rosenstein can always appoint somebody else. And so, to me... Mueller is less the, the root of the problem than the symptom. The, the root is really the Rosenstein order and how it invites the fishing expedition. So even if you got rid of Mueller, if you put someone else in, they're going to have the same incentives to try to find something to make themselves useful um, sure. in an investigation like this. Sure. I was just laughing because I was thinking, all right, so the problem may not be Mueller. The problem may be the Republican appointed by the Republicans. Rosenstein. I don't, you don't need to comment on that. Ron DeSantis, we're so glad you're there. Thank you very much, Congressman. All right, Bill. You take care. We appreciate it. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Bill Bennett Show. Brian Kennedy is president of the American Strategy Group and uh, has uh, was a surrogate for Donald Trump uh, at the convention and uh, has been uh, talking and writing about this. And let's take a look. Donald Trump this morning, 38.5% approval, 56.5% disapproval. How's he doing? Well, I think he's doing great. Those polls... Great. You think he's doing great? I do, given the fact that uh, both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party are against him, the fact that he has not really assembled a complete administration to carry out his policies, and that the media is engaged in a full-time war against him. Given all those things, yeah. I, think he's doing, he, I think he's doing a great job. And by the way, I wouldn't necessarily trust those polls. Those polls are... They're a different kind of thing. I know they have you know better and worse polls, but I, I just don't see how you can measure these things right now, given all the, the the tumultuous things going on in the world and in our world here. Uh, no, I, I think he's standing up quite well. Well, I do too, um, and, I, and I'll agree with you on that. And you know, in some ways, one would think that. Following the election, people wouldn't have the decency to bring polls up anymore. I mean, I remember one poll two days before the election had Hillary up by 20 points. 20, which is less than what we're, more than what we're talking about now uh, in terms right. of the difference. Yeah. So, so yeah, I, I agree with you. I think he's, you know, well, let me ask you, um, uh, and then I do want to push on a few things. Because, as you know, I support him. I like him and I defend him. But I think we all need to push each other on this because... Um, uh, you know, it's sure. it's hard. It's it's hard for him, and it's hard for us. By the way, in addition to the media being against him, Democrats, a lot of Republicans, uh, not having his team in, 
Uh, it's also, he's, it's his first time around. He hasn't really lived in the White House before or done any political things. He's learning the job. But uh, what do you think so far are the, are, the, are, the, are the great, you said he's doing great. So what are the great accomplishments? Well, I think he's, um, he's taken the argument to the American people directly about what's wrong with their government. And he's tried to reinvigorate in the American soul this idea that human beings are supposed to be self-governing. And he stands as a representative of that to the American people. And I think that's a very useful thing for him. They sent a representative to Washington to do and represent what they think about government. And just the fact that Donald Trump appears to be fighting for them every day has, I, has, I think, invigorated a certain new kind of spirit in the American people, certainly in his, in his own supporters. Um, now, you know, how, that's not all that tangible. That doesn't put bread on the table. But you look at the economy, a lot's going right in the economy. Boy, a 3% second quarter is amazing. I mean, that's really good, isn't it? Right. And that's, you know, it's not necessarily due to any one single thing he did, but to the signal that he's willing to get rid of a lot of the the regulations that Obama put in place. He's giving people confidence about spending. If I'm a businessman, I look out at Trump and I think, now's the time to invest. Let's take my money out of, you know the money I've been hiding, and let's put it to something productive. Yeah. He sends all the right signals to the economy and to the American people. And that by itself is a very useful thing. You combine that with a different posture toward illegal immigration, a different posture toward radical Islamic terrorism. Those two things alone are going to make the country safer. And that's a different fundamental approach than we've had for maybe 20 years. Yeah, you know, I was saying the other day that uh, 60-70% reduction at the border, someone corrected me and said it's more like 70 to 80 now. Um, and, uh, and and that's interesting. And one of the arguments that used to be made like two weeks ago or a month ago was the American economy is weak. But the American economy doesn't appear so weak, not with that second quarter. So that uh, that underscores that too. What about foreign policy? Um I gave him credit and, and, and lamented the fact that he wasn't getting credit for Kim Jong-un backing down. You know, people were screaming about Trump saying, you know, that he's uh, going to start a war and, you know, he's bellicose and he's upping the ante. But then Kim Jong-un back, seemed to back down. Now he's backed back up, if I can use that expression, uh, Jong-un. What, what do you say about that, Brian? Yeah, well, that's an interesting point. I, I, I think... A lot of that is, as I've been saying, political theater. And Kim Jong-un does that to yank our chain. And certainly he's building very dangerous offensive weapons. But I tend to agree with those who say, including Steve Bannon and David Goldman and others, that a war against North Korea is somewhat unlikely, a preemptive war. Um, because it would just be so damaging to South Korea. The North Korea in their death throes, as it were, could launch a barrage of 
either artillery or short-range missiles and do the kind of damage to Seoul that would be unheard of. Um, and so Trump understands that. And for all of Trump's tough talk, he's backing it up with efforts to build missile defense to make the North Korean arsenal irrelevant. Now, he needs to go at a faster pace. and He has to get his Defense Department working around the clock. They're not yet doing that. But Trump sees the, um, the danger, and instead of um, just sitting there, is pushing his military to build the kind of defensive weapons that would make us uh, safe from North Korea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, uh, but I do think, I do think that the, the North Koreans are, by and large, close allies of the Chinese, and the Chinese use this to yank our chain. I I to get us going in the wrong direction. I'm not expert on foreign policy. I don't know as much as you do on this stuff. It did seem to me, and I I think I have a pretty good sniffer for uh, fake news, but it did seem to me that when you're launching missiles and they're traveling over north of the northern part of Japan, and people in Japan are saying, you know, get out of the street, take to your shelter or whatever, that this is a, a, a real difference, though. I mean, maybe they did it by accident. May, I don't. I don't know, but that did seem to me worth noting, and an escalation. Uh, an escalation, yes, but it, it's meant to have a political purpose, right? Okay. It's meant okay. to. It's meant to condition okay. the Japanese people and the Americans that the Chinese are serious, not the North Koreans. The Chinese are serious because, as we've discussed before. Would, would China let North Korea, and China supplies 90% of their food and energy, would China, who has built this vast economic empire, would they let the North Koreans screw that up with a war with the United States or with Japan? Yeah. I think okay. the answer would be no. Yeah. And so the North Koreans would only do that with the permission of the Chinese. And so when the North Koreans launch that missile... I think they're saying that China is serious about whatever it is we're talking about, arguing about, negotiating, and don't think you're getting a pass on this. And so this is high politics, to be sure, high politics. I mean, just because it's political theater doesn't mean it's high politics. And I think right now the Chinese and the North Koreans are going to gauge what is the American response from shooting that missile over Japan, are they going to do something militarily? That'll be one response. Are they going to accelerate missile defense programs? Are they going to do something economically? So this is this is a big deal. I don't, I don't mean to minimize it whatsoever. I think this is a okay. I see kind, kind of cold war between the Chinese and the United States and Japan and North Korea is the surrogate that pushes it all forward. But it's more political than military, right? Well, everything is political, right? Yeah, but I mean, it's to make a political point, not to advance a military interest or front. Right. Well, yes, but it it will also try to gauge what the military response is. Yeah. If, yeah. The Uni- yeah. if the United States and Japan saw that missile attack and did nothing with regards to missile defense, nothing with regards to the development of sea-based assets, 
or uh, Air Force deployment. They did nothing. The Chinese will see that as being okay. weak and, and indifferent to such a an action. If the United States does something, then a lesson will be learned what, there, too. What about these uh, voices that seem to be dissent? Uh, I was asked about this on television. Tillerson and Mattis, even, um, you know, about the need for diplomacy and so on and so on. Do you, do you regard these as dissenting voices, dissenting voices that the president allows or tolerates or doesn't care, or are these people off the reservation? How do you view this? Yeah, I, I don't... You know, the president tweeted out the other day that the time for talk was over because he thinks, you know, only, you know, they've been talking for for two decades and the North Koreans proceed apace. Um, and the president has his view. His instinct is, seems to me, both right and good. And he voiced it. And so his message to the uh, to the Chinese was loud and clear. Uh Tillerson, as Secretary of State, he has to say diplomatic things. It's almost like it's in the handbook. It's, you know, there's a decoder ring and you walk through the door and, yeah. Yeah. you know, you're for, diplo- you're for diplomacy. Repeat after um, me. Pledge to defend the Constitution of the United States, right? So help me God. And I will practice diplomacy. Yeah, that's right. Right, right. Uh, and I think, you know, just in the course of things, if your Secretary of State is, is being bellicose as well, you have nowhere else to go. No, that's right. That's fair enough. Right. Let's so, go to Texas. I, I, I expect Tillerson to be, to be somewhat that way, and, and Matt is maybe as well. Let's go to Texas. Uh, my first opportunity uh, on a podcast talk about the situation there. First of all, I mean, I, I'll say very little. It's all been said, but uh, I will just say, um, you know, has everybody gone to Texas? I mean, am <laughs> I the only one who hasn't gone down there to volunteer? It is amazing what Americans do. And it's amazing what these Texans do. You know, someone pointed out this was a state that went very strongly for Trump, Texas. Look at those deplorables. Boy, they are acting, and they are not acting deplorably. So this uh, black woman with her children uh, in the back of a truck saying, I was rescued by an angel, a white angel. I mean, all you do is see pictures of white people helping black people, black people helping white people. That's America, not this stupid trumped-up Charlottesville brouhaha. Uh, of course, that was real, but I mean, what people are trying to make out of that, that that's just the image of America, that's not what 90%, 95% of America is about. What 95% of America is about is what you're seeing in Texas. Well, maybe not 95%, because Texans or Americans are just a little more American than a lot of other people. Maybe 99%. Maybe. I mean, yeah, I, maybe I, 99. I, I, yeah. I have, a, I have a very high opinion of Americans and a very high opinion of Texans. Okay. What you we'll saw. What you what you saw was the spirit of the American people helping one another out of love and patriotism okay. and just okay. human decency. So that that's the great lesson for the week. All right, I've been trumped by you on that. You grew up in sunny California. I grew up grew up in the subways of dark dark subways of Brooklyn. You know that's our. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the sunshine the, the sunshine has a way of um, being taxed of helping. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, nowadays, certainly, certainly. Yeah, well, I, yeah. I, I actually grew up here at a time when it was pretty racially divided. I know, I know uh, you did. I know and there was did. a lot of racial hostilities, but I know. people come together. 
Let's uh, talk about the reason I want to go to Texas is not just to, to praise people, but I, I sure do. It's just wonderful to to watch. Uh, I don't mean the floods. Of course, it's horrible and people are dying. But to see the outpouring, it just, you know, there, there's a lot of good in this horrible catastrophe, a lot of good coming out of out of it for America to witness. When the narrative they're getting from a lot of the mainstream media is this, you know, this horrible divided country. You know, and I've said maybe we are, as Alan Gelso said, you know, the most divided we've been since Civil War. But boy, there's no there's no divisions there in Texas, not when that flood hits. That's for sure. Yes, and the main story becomes uh, what shoes Melania is wearing. Yeah, right? well, yeah. And, and you know, when that's the story, you're probably going to come out come out okay. I know there's loss of life, and that's all horrible, but. When the media can just talk about her shoes, you know, probably this is not, this is something we can fix. This Mrs. is something Bennett, we can overcome. Mrs. Mrs. Bennett noticed the shoes going up on Air Force One, not coming out of Air Force One in Texas, but going up. And she thought it was just fine. Didn't you? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I'm, sh- I'm sure, by the way, that there's a, well, there was actually a little known executive order uh, in the first days of the Trump administration where it said that there'll be no tennis shoes inside the White House. <laughs> Is that and right? W- women, women especially flotists, have to be wearing high heels. Yeah. So she was leaving the White House in high heels because can you imagine how dispiriting it would be if you saw inside the White House the first lady where she'd look great, but you would think, my God, Things must be really bad if she's wearing tennis shoes inside the White House. Let's go back to Texas. Let's go. Let's take another look at Texas. It's Donald Trump in Texas. I have never seen him so fulsome, so um, you know, engaged uh, in, a, in a specific issue or question. Maybe he has been, but he it, it just just his his spirit, his encouragement, his gratitude, his praise of the people of Texas. We're going to fix this. Um, some some people have said, well, this is this is a Trump-sized project. It's big, it's physical, he understands it, uh, he can get into this. But it seemed to me to be pretty strong and pretty effective, and it seems to me he ought to get pretty good grades for this one. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, he also seemed in, in, in all of his public pronouncements to give the first praise to the people of Texas themselves. Yep. He wasn't like, hey, look at me. It was, look at you, and look at all the good things you're doing. And that, that I thought, was quite admirable on his part. And he did it in such a way as to lift the spirits of all those Texans who were suffering all this horrible devastation. And sure, the federal government has a role, and he wanted people to know that the federal government is going to be there. But those Texans are pretty independent folk. You know, they have their own power grid. They think of themselves as kind of independent in their own way as part of the United States. Yeah. They're not going to depend on the rest of the United States. That's a that's a great spirit to have. And he reinforced it. And I thought that was that was very, very good. On and Fox, they also look, they, they, they called on each. They called me. I found, you know, it, it should be common sense, but they turned to one another with their boats to go rescue one another. They weren't sitting there waiting for the federal government. They were acting like citizens in a free country. And I thought what Trump had to say about all that was was perfect. Uh, Yeah. Uh, Yes. 
You're absolutely right. Um, and, and I just uh, – look, he is um, – no, no matter what, I, I, I've been reading a lot of things about him because I, I, you know, I think occasionally we get it, occasionally we miss it. But somebody, a man named Evan Syatt, wrote an essay, and he said – you know, quoted Lincoln famously about Grant. He fights, right? He, what, is it still he fights or something like that? Brian, you know, you're the Lincoln guy. What, what was the quote? Yeah, no, I think it was. I he can't fights. spare this man. He fights, right? Right, um, right. And Trump fights. And one of the other lines in this uh, in this essay was, uh, he's our first wartime president in the culture war, uh, taking on the culture war. I would argue and say Reagan did too, but not as frontally uh, as uh, as Donald Trump is. And that's, if you believe, as I do, and as I know you do, that the culture is, at the end, in the end, more important than politics. Politics can affect the culture, but culture affects politics uh, more in the first instance. Then, um, then that, that's right. He is, I was just reading this other essay by our, our friend Conrad Black. Uh, in this jungle, Donald Trump, for all his foibles, is the greatest and strongest beast he does seem to be the strongest. There's a certain indefatigability about him, isn't there? The guy is loaded with energy and uh, and and uh, mojo. Absolutely, absolutely, and that and that I think is pretty cool. Just the energy and the willingness to go for it. But but to your point about about Reagan and being the first, you know, president in the culture war, the first wartime president in the culture war. He had as his general Bill Bennett. Oh well, not I don't. A general. I, I, I don't. I don't know that that Trump has that kind of general. He's doing it all by himself. I was part of the general staff. Let me just go, go ahead. Yeah. Well, oh, no, he's, I mean, he's doing a lot yeah. of it by himself. No, I know what no, you mean. Look, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and by the way, I, you know, as a as a student of Aristotle, I'd be I'd be remiss to not try to offer at least the the slight. Uh, amendment to the idea that culture is more important than politics. The politics in Aristotle yeah. says, sh- you know, the regime shapes the character of the people. Sure. And it's the character of the people that make the culture. Sure. And so, and so the nature of the regime is what is superior to the culture because it's that that changes it. Now, once the character and the culture of the people intertwine and the people are somehow corrupted by that, they then can change their regime. And we're going through that process, aren't we? Yeah. The regime, so, the re- regime shapes the people, but in a self-governing republic, um, that's <laughs> the regime has a lot to do with who we are. Right, right. Okay, okay. But it's, it's reciprocal. Political, yeah. Well, it's a, and all I mean by that is it's a political question yeah. And not so much a culture question. And the reason I say all that, I, I was at a, a discussion recently huh. where someone said, well, we have to change the culture first. We better make movies that are conservative and teach people certain lessons. And my response was, well, that would be great to do anyway. But if you don't pass uh, a repeal of Obama and you don't yeah. build the border yeah. wall and you don't do all these political things. Yeah then you're not going to get there. And so it's politics and culture, not politics. All right, I'll, I'll accept that amendment. Yeah, politics and culture, because they are intermixed for sure. Uh, and uh, right. to concede your point, as we got to the very edge of the election, you know, and I looked, uh, Hillary is 
presidency, I saw The Abyss. And you could make as many movies as you want. If she were president, I think we might have lost the country. And now I think this country really has a fighting chance. Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, I think there's a lot of conservative movies and a lot of conservative things on TV. You watch Game of Thrones. You watch The Walking Dead. You watch all these things. No, none none of them. None of them. No, I know, but I'm saying they're, they're, they're in some <laughs> ways very. Cons- but but look, I know, at, look I know at the are. culture. The culture of America can be distilled down to college football, which I know you love. Which that starting, I watch. That I watch is, is starting more in earnest this weekend, and if that's an any indicator of the American culture, that's pretty good. Yeah, there's a bunch of people playing a great game. It's patriotic. It's you bet. It's super. So I, I don't, I'm not as down on even the culture, I don't think. It's the politics of the country that seems to me so corrupt these days. You said starting this weekend more in earnest. I mean, Alabama, Florida State is, quote, more in earnest. I would say that's definitely. Well, I saw. Isn't <laughs> Ohio State? Yeah, right. Ohio State's, I think, playing tonight, too. Playing Thursday night. Yet yeah, tonight. And uh, at Oklahoma State. Look out for them. Don't get me started. We will. Don't get me well, started. But anyway, I talk to my intellectual friends like you, and I hear about Game of Thrones, which I've never seen. Uh, the Dead Warrior, what's it called? The Dead of the Walk, The Walking Dead? Uh, the, the Walking Dead. Never seen it. I talked to our mutual friend Seth Liebson the other day. He said, you got to watch Roadies. I don't know what that is. Then somebody else told me to watch Baller Wives. These are wives of football players. Yeah, that was uh, me. That was you. Okay, I'm I'm under I'm underestimating your number of references. Anyway, Aristotle Baller Wives. Okay, is that the name of the show? It is actually. A friend of okay. mine was producing it. Sure, uh, of course. The interesting thing of yeah, I mean, but look, these things are all a window into the into the minds of the American people. Yes, they are. The American people are by and large are pretty decent people. If only you know they what? had political leaders that could match their uh, hard work and dedication to freedom. Yeah, who was it? Was some not very good president? Wasn't it Carter who said to want to be as good as the American, get give the American people the president they deserve? Somebody that's said not too, that. I mean, you know, come on, that's, that's not too bad. No, it's not too bad, no. But, I mean, he wasn't it. We deserve better than that. Right. Last, last yeah. reflection on Donald Trump. What are we looking for? What's happening next? Will he pull this out? Oh, absolutely. I think he okay. will. Okay. Look, I think there's going to be a big fight this fall. I think two things. One, he's going to have a big fight this fall on those things we just talked about. He'll try to get – I hope he's going to try to get another repeal of Obamacare. I think it would be political suicide for the Republicans in Congress not to do that. And so I hope he pushes them along those lines. He's going to fight for a big tax cut and tax reform. That will be a good thing. That will be a win. Uh, and if he can get a budget passed that includes uh, you know, funding for the border wall or more substantial funding for the border wall, and they actually start getting something done, he'll be able to point to all those things. And I think that'll be a victory for him. That's number one. Number two, I think you, know, you hear about members of the cabinet who plan on staying for a year and then leaving. I think some of that's going to happen. There'll be, my guess is, more uh, shakeout in the cabinet 
And eventually, Trump will build a team around him who can get things done. He right. had one team, and All they right. got certain things done, and he'll build another team, and, and they'll get something more important done, let's hope. All right. So I'm encouraged. Uh, all right, good. Um, encouragement is important and needed. Thank you, Brian Kennedy, president of the American Strategy Group. Really appreciate it very much. And I think we'll just let this conversation go unedited. I, I will leave it to my betters, to my censors, uh, to my um, you know watchers, observers. Um, what do you call the guy you send out on the date with your daughter? Um, chaperone. The sh- my chaperones <laughs> to decide. Your, your, your minders. Yeah, yeah. The only word we didn't use for Donald Trump was Homeric. I think that we saved that for somebody else. Yes, there's only there's only one Homeric person I know. That's it. That's it. We'll talk about that some other day. Thank you, Brian Candy. Thanks very much. My pleasure. Okay, folks, that's a show. That's a full show. Lots of different voices, uh, lots of different issues. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, It's the Bill Bennett Show. It's a free podcast. Please tell your friends. Please subscribe, and we'll talk to you next week. This is Bill Bennett signing off.